0: Bring the good old bugle boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. So we sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through door. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast as we are continuing our look at the uh, American Civil War through the Library of America's anthology of uh, the voices from the Civil War. We are coming into the home stretch here. In this episode we'll look at August to October 1864. and our main theme will clearly be the presidential election. but we'll have some other things to talk about too. Um, fortunately, now no, no real battles to mention or those that are kind of here. I'll just skip over. There's not much to see to Peter Petersburg is ongoing. Atlanta will fall in these months, setting up, uh, the context for the, the song being, or the events sung about in the bumper, the the March to the sea. So let's see where these documents lead us. Um, well, our, the first document is, it's, it's kind of set up for the election anyways. It's, uh, Benjamin Wade and Henry Winter Davis's, uh, manifesto a response to Lincoln's pocket veto of the. Of way davis bill um if you remember the way davis bill we mentioned last episode was this uh, uh it was basically a policy that required the ironclad oath for reconstruction um this is a you know that is a radical republican position as i understand but these were democrats so they're using this as a way to attack lincoln it seems um for for kind of not taking seriously reconstruction that seems what they're trying to say and therefore perpetuate the war and shut down any possibilities for peace. But actually the ironclad oath, oath was stronger uh, or a harsher policy, I should say, than uh, than Lincoln's 10% plan. Um, and that's actually criticized here as kind of being undemocratic. Like, how, how can it be right if only 10% of a Southern state makes this uh, weak tea oath? It can come in, but 90% are still secessionist or whatever. Um, of course, I, I I'm still... Guessing that Lincoln's position here was like a wartime measure. The historian out there can maybe say i wrong about that, but I'm thinking a, a Lincoln during Reconstruction would have been just as. I mean, if you th- if you if he had been assassinated in 1862, you wouldn't know he was for the end of slavery, right? Uh, based on his statements and the policies he was put forth at the time. Um, but anyways, a lot of criticism of Lincoln here. A response to that pocket veto. Um, You know, the arguments basically Lincoln can't claim ignorance about what this is about, which is something he sort of suggested when he pocket vetoed it. Um, He also talks or they they talk a lot here about how Lincoln's unjustly imposing his rule. It basically sustaining martial law in in southern states seems legitimate to me. I don't see the criticism there. Um, I guess they're saying, well, you're not make you're not allowing us to move forward on a reconstruction policy that would allow these states to be normalized. The the argument here, and this is one commonly made by peace Democrats. I've learned reading these documents is that the constitution guarantees a Republican form of government for all states. Therefore, the military rule, uh, being, being implemented during the war is illegitimate and unconstitutional. Um, constitutional authority to end slavery is not in the president or the Congress, it's gotta be a constitutional amendment. Uh, agreed I guess uh, that's why the 13th amendment exists is because I think even Lincoln understood that um, and then criticizing the 10% plan I just think if, if you want to have a quicker reconstruction and these state's position to be normalized then embrace the 10% plan I think it's just an anti-Lincoln document in the context of the election it's a little bit of opportunism but uh, whatever That's it's a good way to start here because we're going to get a lot about the elections um the election's coming out. in November of 64. Um, so next we have Robert Garlick Hilkeen writing a diary. He's from, um, he's in the Confederate War Department. And he, he mentions here the crater battle and the brutality of that particular battle. And the overall increased brutality of the war is on his mind. The war's harshness, it's strain on resources and... Uh, And he he emphasizes here like the destruction in the aftermath of the Jubal early raid on washington shenandoah valley campaign uh saying like the the union response has been destruction of villages destruction of towns seizuring of provisions and all that and this is just a sign of the growing brutality of the war but you know as we just saw last episode the crater battle led to the wholesale slaughter of union soldiers so it's it's really on, on uh, we got to put that into the context here and I think there's so much rewriting of history even during the war in a lot of these documents and hiding some truth There's, um, you know, this is a diary. It's not a public document, but even here they're kind of rewriting, there's preparing for the lost cause almost. I get that sense sometimes, um, this is followed up by, uh, Bethella Harrison's, uh, account of witnessing the Union Army destroying provisions, destroying civilian property in the Shenandoah Valley. Again, this is all in the aftermath of the Jubal Early Raid on Washington campaign. None of this is of primary interest to me today though. It's just documents exist so I'll I'll just mention that they're there. So in uh, the next document we have Lincoln's memorandum memo on on the reelection and this is him setting the groundwork for a new administration that he thinks likely as is, is well known. He didn't think he was going to win the election, even though it was sort of a landslide election. So this is before modern polls and things. Even now, polls get things wrong. But this was Lincoln was just based on the perception. He's kind of a gloomy guy, right? He had his bouts of melancholy and things like that. So it's not surprising he thought he was going to lose. There's plenty of... He probably spent a lot of time reading like the the, the press. that's was hostile to him. Um and there there is bad news at the time right there is that ongoing siege the blood of the overland campaign and the stalling of atlanta certainly the fall of atlanta helped swing the balance i don't know if it would have affected the election in the end but it did make it look like the war was on its way to being won and we'll see the confederate response to the fall of atlanta later on it's kind of interesting um, but he's what he says here in this memo is just to the cabinet. He's just saying we're going to work with the new administration when they come in, if if they come in. He says, it will be my duty to cooperate with the president-elect as as to save the union between the election and the inauguration. Yes, he will have secured his election on such grounds that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. So even though he says he'll work with them in that lame duck period, he's, he realizes, right, that... The, whoever replaces him would not be for sustaining the war. Fortunately, had Lincoln lost, you know, the war ended in, like, April, right? And, and in those days, the lame duck session was longer, so he would have been president presidential march. I mean, I, I don't know, would the 13th Amendment would have been passed by then? I don't know. That, I guess that would have went down differently if it was a, if the Congress wouldn't have been more Republican. So, probably still a good thing Lincoln got reelected. At least we got the second inaugural address out of it too. Um, but he might have lived to 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 old age. All right, next document uh, is Benjamin Butler, a good friend Benjamin Butler, to uh, to a Confederate officer on the question of prisoner exchange. Um, and we of course we've seen the Andersonville prison. We've there's overcrowding among in these prisons. And prisoner exchanges are a bit counterproductive because they mean um, for every soldier, you know, you swap soldiers, right? So that means they're going back into the front lines. It's gonna undermine the efforts to wear down Confederate forces if they just put on the uniform again. But at the same time, you have soldiers dying in these prison camps and these bad conditions and all of that. So the Union cannot afford to wait it out, but there's human rights reasons to want to get those soldiers back. But the real issue that Benjamin Butler here is talking about, and I think it's a really relevant one, is, yeah, okay, we can talk about exchanging prisoners, but you must treat black soldiers equally with white soldiers for this purpose. But you've, your policy is to re-enslave, or to enslave... I, I guess it would... I don't know about, like, people who were black, uh, free blacks before. I think that policy applied to them, too. I'm not sure there was a much uh, bean counting about who who was owned by who. But I guess it was... If someone runs away, joins the Union Army, and then later is captured, they'd be returned to their original master if they could be located or just put into general slavery for the state or something, become kind of like helots. Uh, of course, you did have the mobilization of enslaved populations, not for military campaigns, but for but for like grunt work, digging, digging cutting down trees, whatever, that, those kinds of jobs. So I'm not quite sure the technicalities of that um, part of the policy. But what Butler's here saying is, yeah, these black soldiers must be exchanged as well. And you have to be agreeing to exchange them, not re-enslaving them. And then he goes into a large argument about like the designation of slaves, how you're being hypocritical, because on the one hand, you're, um, we, we treated them as, as lost property, and then we could seize it permanently. And then he actually says, like in that case, it becomes our property to who want, and then they're no longer slaves. That's the full argument. Obviously, if the Union steals a cannon and the Confederates then or or seize a cannon in war and then the Confederates sees that they could use that, the question is, are they still, is it still the property of an individual? Right. And the Confederates are saying, yes, it was always the property of so-and-so. And And, and Butler says that the Confederate states can have no claim upon the Negro soldiers captured by them from the armies of the United States because the former ownership of them by their citizens or subjects and only claim such result under the laws of war from their capture merely do the confederate authorities claim the right to reduce to the state of slavery freedmen prisoners of war captured by them this claim our fathers fought against under Brainbridge and decatur when set up by the barbary powers on the northern shores of africa he's, he's talking here about the the yeah the war with the barbary pirates or whatever so he's making a pretty i think solid legal argument i don't know like how judges would look at that or lawyers but it seems to make sense to me um, that it's, it's the basis of the argument is that you must treat these people as soldiers, prisoners of war, and therefore return them um, in a prisoner exchange. So, but basically this means the prisoner exchange isn't going to happen because this is not a line the Confederacy wants to cross to admit that these people really were freed. Um, next we have a uh, Robert Toombs writing to Alexander Stevens. Stevens, of course, is the vice president of the Confederacy. And this is just about the indefensibility of Atlanta. Um, we don't actually get too many sources on the battlefields around Atlanta with the fall of Atlanta. But clearly the fight on, on Atlanta went back and forth and then eventually the city got you know, s- laid siege to and it became an indefensible position compared here directly to Vicksburg, which was of course a catastrophe. So the p- decision was then to sort of withdraw from there to save the army, to prevent it from being captured in total. Um, and he complains about Confederate cavalry units kind of rampaging in the countryside and using up resources for no real purpose. Uh, he talks about the poor state of the Army of the Tennessee. And g- interestingly, because this guy was uh, opponent of Davis, like a political opponent of Davis, but he kind of pokes Davis in the eye on the issue of, of like their officers saying, your officers suck. Your officers are all like, it's all there for nepotism and for class reasons. They're not, they're Davis supporters. They're loyal to you. They're not the best soldiers, right? Right, quote, uh, this army of Tennessee is in a deplorable condition. Hood is getting rid of Bragg's worthless pets as fast as he can, but Davis supports a great number of them and many other incompetent. Competence are sent from other places to take their command. Hood, I think, is the very best of the generals of his school, but like all the rest of them, he knows no more business than a 10 year old boy and doesn't know who does know anything about it. The longer the war lasts, the more money, the more, the m- longer the war lasts, the more and more important it becomes to husband the resources of the country. End quote. But we're wasting them. We're wasting them on, on foolish battles. He's more, I think, of the school of. of Johnson who's in leadership in in, um, Atlanta and you see the hint that things are improving slightly but all these incompetent officers and soldiers are are showing up. All right back to the election. Um, Yeah I think we'll we'll, we'll focus on the election for for a while now. Um, The next document is the Democratic Party's convention platform. Um, of course, conventions were done in very different ways in those days. Uh, the platform was probably more important in many ways than the candidate themselves before the days of television and, and mass campaigning and all that. Of course, McClellan would be the candidate, as we know. But the platform is pretty short. It's only about a page long um, because there's only there's not that much um, to focus on. It's really only one issue. It's not going to get into the tariff or get into the you know, the Homestead Act or these kind of other issues. It's focusing on the one issue that's relevant to them, and that's the question of peace, how to achieve it, how to restore the union as quickly as possible. The The platform basically comes down to peace at any cost, right? Um, another issue subs, uh, under this would be like the martial law rule in border states being unjust, being unconstitutional. Then. Under that is like the rights of states, how that joins with unionization, I don't know. I think basically the position is like states can still do what they want on their internal policy as long as they re-enter. And it ends with a, a, a support the troops, man, kind of statement. So not much surprising here, but peace at peace at essentially any cost because the country's falling apart. Everything's you know going to hell. You know, countries at the brink of civil war, you know, the North is in the brink of civil war and all because of the tyrannical war sustained by the Republicans. All right, now, next we have James Gilmore's uh, report on his visit to Richmond. This was mentioned in the last episode two. This was the kind of the peace mission that was sent to, to Richmond on official um, peace mission um and this is like a newspaper account later of the of the whole meeting with davis now the note to to the government was just basically no peace without southern independence that's what the message we got from davis and that's a no-go but we get a lot more here um, of the we get the whole like transcript and he, he says he did it from memory so probably some of it's embellished it may not be word for word what davis said but I have a hunch people were better at this than we are nowadays where everything's recorded and filmed or tape recorded. People had to train themselves to remember conversations. That's just a guess, I don't know. Maybe maybe a lot of this is embellished, who knows? But I think the gist of it's probably right. Um, they discuss, I mean, basically their position is uh, peace can only happen with union. Davis's position is uh, Peace would require respect of Southern rights and independence, and this independence is something we're going to fight for until the last man, essentially. Um, and that's, of course, exploiting the election, because if they don't want to negotiate for peace when there's an election, then they could probably get a better deal from the Democrats if the Democrats get voted in. Um, so Davis is is kind of holding out. I think that's basically what we see from the Confederacy in these documents: is this idea, let's just if we can hold out till the Till the Democrats are elected, then there'll be a some kind of peace offer offer that will be more palatable to, to us. Maybe return to the Union with some compensated emancipation, or you know, maybe even keeping slavery in some cases. Um, it's kind of delusional to think that's still possible, but that's what they're hoping for. Um, the discussion back and forth is very fascinating, though, and very honest, and and I quite enjoyed reading it. Slavery is brought up a few times. Here. And of course, Davis wants to distance the Confederacy from slavery at this point in the war, which is not something that we saw early in the war. Again, I, I think they know it's lost on some level and they know they're going to have to like account to history for what this war was over, you know, and it's like it can't be about slavery. This is like feeding into the lost cause idea that developed after the Civil War, that the war really wasn't about slavery. It was about some other thing. Or it was a ban. It was a war between brothers. That's the worst, right? Where is the quote here? Well, he says something about how like, uh, you know, like you guys are just lecturing the South, telling us what to do, imposing on our rights, all that kind of nonsense. Um, And then on the issue of slavery, he says, like, I mean, what are you talking about? Like half our slaves are gone already, like slavery is already falling apart and That really can't be what we're fighting about anymore. I don't know if that's true. I think they're fighting for slavery till that last moment, but he's trying to argue that, that the the game's over on slavery. So we're fighting for something higher, more noble, our independence. Um, when he, the, when Gilmore talks about the terms, he says they are very generous, but amnesty sir applies to criminals. He's talking about the amnesty thing. It's like, you can't call us criminals. We have committed no crime. Confiscation is no account unless you enforce it. And emancipation? You have already emancipated nearly two million of our slaves. And if you and if you will take care of them, you may in pass emancipate the rest. So the argument is, take our blacks. We don't need them. Um, not true. If you know anything about the post-war Southern economy. Um, and he says, oh, I had a few when the war began. I was of some use to them. They were never any. E. They were, and never were they any e to me. I mean, what a, bold statement to say I had slaves but but they needed me more than I needed them. But he says, no, what we're really fighting for is is to emancipate ourselves, our independence, our freedom. Um, and basically the meeting ends then at an impasse because there's no really no grounds for peace on these these terms. But it's a really amazing discussion. And if you can find it, I mean it, there's probably a copy of it somewhere. It was originally published in uh, the Atlantic Monthly under a pen name, but September 1864. All right. All right. Then we have just, I'm going to come back to a document a little bit later on, but, um, for now let's, let's key stay on this issue of the election. So next we have Thomas, um, Thomas Bramlett writing to Abraham Lincoln in September, and he's a union Democrat. And again, it's, it's tied to the election. He's basically establishing his position of opposing protesting the martial law. I think this is kind of an overblown thing. They're, they're at war. Who else is going to govern these areas that are taken over? Maybe with the border States, it's a little hairier at times legally, but yeah, it's, it's during a rebellion. The president has constitutional authority under a rebellion that are beyond the powers of in peacetime. So, anyways, but he does take on it tw- directly the question of of union and slavery, and he kind of going back retro arguments to like stuff you heard in 1862 about how slavery needs to be taken off the table uh in terms of peace. The pres- preservation of the union is the most important thing. Uh, he writes. writes this in common with the loyal masses of Kentucky my Unionism is unconditional we are for preserving the rights and liberties of our own race and upholding the character and dignity of our position we are not willing to sacrifice a single life or imperil the smallest right of free white men for the sake of the Negro we repudiate the counsels of those who say the government must be restored with slavery or that it must be restored without slavery as a condition of their Unionism we are for the restoration of our government throughout our entire limits regardless of what may happen to the Negro End quote. Now, to be fair, this is how Lincoln said back in 1862 when he was asked publicly about this question. But um, behind the scenes, as we saw, they were doing things to push along emancipation, despite those public pronouncements. But here that that line that that argument sort of com- is being used against him. Um, but it's such I mean, it's not gonna fly. I mean, they're, what are you going to do? You, slavery was done. I mean, it's pretty clear from the documents by enslaved people that they're done with slavery. The ones we see, they're not going back. Right? And l- let's let's do this. I skipped this document, but there's this um, man named Spotswood Rice. And it's very similar to a document we looked at last time where he escaped um, It's from a border state. Missouri. And he escaped in February 1864. And he writes to his children, um, saying, I'm going to get you back. Just wait a little bit longer. You'll be back in my arms. It's a very touching letter. So, you know, love to all the family and friends on the plantation or whatever. We'll get you back you will tell her from me and she said tell this to the master you will tell her from me that she is the first christian that i ever heard say that a man could steal his own child especially out of human bondage um quite a beautiful um sentiment there and speaking truth to power and then he writes a letter to his master this um kitty Diggs is her name i don't know what happened to the to her husband or, or or what her story is he died in the war and he says mary is my child and she is a God. in it she she is a god given right of my own and you may hold on to her as long as you can but i want you to remember this one thing that the longer you keep my child from me the longer you'll have to burn in hell and the quicker you'll get there for we are now making up about 1000 black troops to come up through and won't come through glasgow and when we come Woe be to the copperhead rebels and to the slaveholding rebels." Unquote. The spelling here is a little little off, um, but, you know, it has to be expected. It's a population that didn't get educated in slavery, but it's still quite beautifully written if you, if you work your way through the the, the the misspellings and the punctuation stuff. But the point is, this document and the one we looked at last time makes it pretty clear that the slaves were done with this. It's just, there was, was, the genie's not coming back on the bottle. So union with slavery isn't even like a material possibility in terms of material conditions. It's it's just not going to happen. Like slavery was destroyed by the war itself. Okay. Okay. Back to politics here. Um, well, that's pretty political, too. It's a good example of like the politics, I suppose. But uh, we get uh, Gideon Wells, the Naval Secretary. He's writing about McClellan's nomination and he complains that their only issue is peace. And he um, he sees the peace Democrats as a betrayer of of the nation. And he talks about the fall of Atlanta, hoping the fall of Atlanta will will put a pin in the in the growth of the of the Peace Democrats. And that's probably true. Um, so next we have a guy I don't even know really who he is, Clement. What's his name? Clement Van De Who cares? Uh, he's writing to McClellan, giving him advice, and he's saying you're going to hear voices from some Democrats about the eastern friends i guess eastern democrats um i think he's specifically talking about a couple of people but it doesn't matter who he says they may tell you to like compromise a little bit on peace and this advice is don't do that don't compromise at all on peace don't mention war at all make the platform make your position in the campaign fully about peace uh, if you accept some war just vote for lincoln right it's kind of like a Um, that actually might be a good political advice if your whole platform is peace you really can't have any compromise in your platform in your campaigning on this question now another kind of bleak account and it's kind of this kind of account that makes me understand why lincoln was so sure he was maybe going to lose re-election this is by george templeton strong writing in september 1864 He talks about the fall of Atlanta, and he's glad of it. Obviously, he's a hardcore loyalist. But he talks about McClellan's campaign, and he sees the campaign as dangerous, and he predicts a civil war in the North. He says, like, really, things are beginning to break down. I don't know how much that's true. You know, was conditions that bad? You, of course, had the draft riots. That was a year earlier. Over a year earlier by this point. But he writes... The greatest experiment of democracy may be destined to fail a century sooner than I had expected in disastrous explosion and general chaos. And this, our grand republic, over which we have bragged so offensively, may be cast down as a great milestone into the sea and perish utterly. And all this within 60 days from the date of these presents. So much for traitors, demagogues, and lunatics. All the South and half the North are absolutely demented. Neither Lincoln nor McClellan is strong enough to manage so large a population an asylum. Who is satan or who is satan Seems superintendent de facto just now old fuller wrote 200 years ago when civil war was raging in england homes our sins were ripe god could no longer be just if we were prosperous and he talks about a lot of let's, just the nastiness of politics during this campaign but so it's, it's pessimistic maybe it's a bit hyperbolic but uh, a sign of the anxiety over over this election um, and then finally, we have George McClellan writing a letter to the nomination committee, basically accepting his nomination. Um, notice how close this is to the election where these nominations were finally nailed down just a month before. Um, but he, you know, when we have two year campaigns it's, it's a, these days, it's kind of refreshing. But he just says, oh, it's necessary to preserve the union. No peace without union. That's, of course, the position of the peace Democrats. They're there. They had to have something so it had to be they had to get something out of the piece right and, and they were hoping it would just be union so that that kind of wraps up the documents we have here hovering around the issue of the election i'm sure we'll say more about it in the next episode as we actually get to the election itself but a few other like a little more cleanup on what's involved in these documents one is the fall of atlanta which we don't get any firsthand accounts except we get sherman writing his famous letter to the city council of atlanta the war is cruelty letter if you haven't read that yet, I'm sure you can find a copy very quickly and read it. It's uh quite a lot of fun to, to look at. This basically says like you started this war and war is cruel and you should have known that. And yeah, your your town's gonna be burned. Your property's gonna be destroyed. But that's the fate that's this is the bill you're paying. The bills come due you and you're gonna pay it. The quote if you don't know it is you cannot qualify war in harsher terms than i will war is cruelty and you cannot refine it and those who brought a war into our country deserve all the curses and maledictions that people can pour on it i know i had no hand in making this war and i know i'll make s- more sacrifices today than any of you to secure peace but you cannot have peace in a division of our country if the united states submits to a division now it will not stop but we'll go on till we reap the fate of mexico which is eternal war so this is his, his letter that basically justifies the torching of, of Atlanta. So we have that. Um, oh, another wonderful document here. Um, Rachel Ann Wicker writing to uh, the government on the issue of equal pay. So this was something that was equal pay for black soldiers was something that was being debated. I think the way it worked was by this point in the war, white soldiers were getting $16 a month and they were getting like a stipend on top of that for living expenses or clothes or something but black soldiers were getting what like this 10 dollars but minus 3 to compensate for the clothes i think that's the way it worked so they're actually only getting like 7 dollars a month and this was being seen as an injustice and it was being debated and they did rectify this of course with uh with laws but it took a while to implement this so she's a wife of a soldier, and she's asking like, when is this back pay coming? When is this equal pay coming? It's a, it's a rather short letter, but it's this reminder that um, even in wartime, it took well for governments to implement these reform policies, maybe too long, right? Of course, blacks should never have been paid less than whites in the first place. Uh, oh, and then we have the Davis speeches. So in September and October of 1864, Davis gave a couple of speeches, one in um one in columbia well the first is in macon in georgia and the next one was in um in columbus in south carolina and they're they're related um they're both optimistic they both make a claim that actually javis made to the peace people the peace commissioners who came to richmond something like a. Well, Sherman may have taken Atlanta, but once he does, he'll have a really long supply lines. he'll be quickly defeated by our, our troops. He says the same thing here. Um, it seems he's trying to build up support for his administration in the aftermath of Atlanta's following because he's a political agent too. I think he had one more year. I think they had five-year terms, so he had a little bit longer to serve than Lincoln, but he's concerned about politics and uh, if he's going to survive. Uh, he talks about desertion and really blames the declining of the Confederate fortunes on desertion. You know, he says, course, he writes, uh, or he says, this was a speech. He says, if one half the men now absent without leave will return to duty. We can defeat the enemy with that hope. I'm going to the front. So he's, he's kind of trying to build up support among some of the officers, but these are largely people who are loyalists anyways. Um, then he gives us in October, he gives a speech in Columbus which repeats a lot of the same stuff. Um, and actually some delusional things too, like still hoping for European recognition that's talked about here. And he talks about how there's really no grounds to negotiate. The, the USA is not giving him any grounds to negotiate. So I read these documents, largely as him providing political cover for himself uh, as he knows the end is coming. Um, but I don't know, maybe he was deluded about that too and just was worried about the next election but anyways speaking of elections we'll have that in the next episode where which will cover October to December of 1864 um specifically we'll look at 21 documents upon that so that'll probably actually get us to the marching through Georgia stuff the march to the sea Looking forward to it, of course. Um, I'm looking forward to wrapping up this series. But uh, thanks for listening to me as I babble on about these documents. Um, And if you have any thoughts about the 1864 election, let me know what they are. Send me an email. And uh if not, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. And for freedom and her train, sixty miles in latitude, three hundred to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain. While we were marching through Georgia. Hoorah, hoorah, we bring the Jubilee.